We're flying through 1 Thessalonians 5. I don't know why you're laughing. This is really progress as we inch along here and try to really unpack what it means to grow in the Lord. Spiritual growth is not really difficult to define. It's not hard for us to know what spiritual growth looks like and what it is. It's just difficult to live out. Our sin-affected humanness, what the Bible refers to as our flesh, is constantly battling with our new liberated nature that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it is a real battle. In fact, the Apostle Peter would say that our fleshly lusts are waging war against our soul. James would put it this way. He says our pleasures wage war against the soul. Paul refers to a different law in the members of our body waging war against the law of our mind. And so to grow spiritually is a battle. It is a battle against our flesh. It is a battle against our natural humanness. It does not come naturally. It's easy to define what spiritual growth is. It's a war to live it out. Now, we know that in this passage of 1 Thessalonians 5, we're talking about spiritual growth from all the way from chapter 4, verse 1 to the end of this, cha- this chapter that we're in, chapter 5, we're talking about what does spiritual growth look like. We know what it looks like. We are in the midst of unpacking seven different habits that would comprise effective Christian growth. They are here listed in rapid fire succession, one command after another, not really explained for us, just listed there. And we see what Christian growth should look like. In fact, from verse 12 of chapter 5 down to verse 22 are these seven different habits that we're unpacking one at a time each week. And they're arranged around two basic headings, how to grow in love and how to grow in our hope in God. Those two elements, how do we grow and how we love one another and how do we grow in our hope in God. And, and we're unpacking that. We grow in love for one another by growing in appreciation for our leaders, verses 12 and 13. We grow in patience, verse 14. We grow in goodness, verse 15. That's how we grow to love each other. And then beginning in verse 16, we look at how to grow in our hope in God. And that consists of growing in in joy, verse 16, prayer, verse 17, gratitude, verse 18, and discernment, verses 19 to 22. So in other words, it's not hard to define that. All those terms are probably terms that you easily understand and know. They're all throughout the Bible. They're not hard to mark out. They are difficult to live out, particularly this passage today. This one strikes at the core of our pride. This command here, this area of growth strikes at our penchant for self-preservation and the idolatry of our hearts to exalt ourselves and pursue justice for ourselves. We all know what a vengeful spirit feels like. We know what it feels like. We have all seen what revenge-filled actions look like. 
It begins with a heart that knows what is right, feels strongly about what is right, abhors what is wrong. And when we see someone we love affected by the wrong, we feel vengefulness. When we see wrong done against us, we sense and sometimes even seethe with revenge inside of us. It comes naturally. To go against the grain of this this idea of revenge really requires something significant because it is so easy and so natural for us. I mean, appreciating our leaders who lead us, that's one thing. We look at that one and say, okay, well, sometimes I don't like them, but we can do this one. <laughs> Dealing with difficult people, yes, that's challenging, but it's so rewarding when we pursue it. Then this one, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. We have to learn how to grow in goodness by fighting revenge. That one's hard. Maybe just to provide some balance on our don't tread on me flags, we should embroider this verse. What do you think? Maybe just to provide a little balance. In the face of increasing opposition to Christian living in the public sectors of life, in light of not merely disagreement with, but rejection of increasing legal attempts to silence biblical truth in society at large. In the shadow of recent impositions of countrywide, statewide, countywide infringements on personal freedom, violations of religious freedom, and basic democratic ideals of freedom. In the face of media-approved demonstrations calling for cultural revenge for a host of injustices. And in the face of all sorts of wrongs that you have faced in your marriage, from your parents, from your children, from your coworkers, from your employer, from your extended family members, from neighbors around you, how does a Christian successfully wrestle with and apply this verse? Or does it even apply to us? Is this just for those who don't have a declaration of independence and a constitution that enshrines inalienable rights? We know the answer to that. The call here, the command here for spiritual growth consists of the necessity of growing in the pursuit of goodness toward other people, particularly the people who have intentionally wronged us. Those who have actually legitimately sinned against us and wronged us? How do you grow in the pursuit of goodness in the face of injustice? This verse, this single verse, points to the kind of commitments necessary to grow in a gospel-defined goodness. And I do want to make sure we understand that. It is a gospel-defined kind of goodness. There's two commitments we're going to look at. If you want to grow in goodness, you're going to have to have these two commitments that this single verse yields for us. Two gospel-defined commitments that guarantee a growth in true goodness. So if you want to grow in goodness, if you want to defeat revenge, you want to see the application of goodness in the face of those who commit injustice against you, here are the two commitments that you're going to have to have. 
First, refuse to repay what is wrong. Refuse it. Refuse to repay what is wrong. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Now again, I just want to emphasize something here. Before we unpack what this phrase means, we have to first understand it in the light of the greater context of this verse. This is not just a take it or leave it, homespun wisdom or moralistic ideal. This injunction that we have here, this command that we have in front of us is in the context of what it means to actually live out the gospel in front of other people. If you are a Christian, this is how you express your love for and your loyalty to Jesus. So we have to understand this verse in light of everything that's come before it. We have to understand this verse and this command in light of its connection to chapter 4 verse 1 of what it means to live and please God. This pleases God. Or even going all the way back to the first chapter. This is an expression of the work of love from chapter 1 verse 3. Or chapter 1 verse 6, this is how you are imitators of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Or chapter 1 verse 9, what it looks like to turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This verse shows you what that looks like. Or even from chapter 2 verse 14, what it looks like to be imitators of other churches that have been persecuted for the gospel's sake and you begin to imitate those churches. This is what imitating that kind of gospel affection looks like. You refuse to repay what is wrong. In other words, Paul writes these words to a people who have faced violent injustices, persistent persecution from their own neighbors, perhaps even family members, and even from some in their own church who were teaching error and leading them astray, maybe for some kind of personal gain, and you are to refuse to look to repay evil for evil because of the gospel. Paul writes these words to a people who have had a testimony of living publicly and powerfully for the glory of God in light of all of their afflictions and because of their embrace of the gospel of Jesus. This is a gospel-defined command, not merely a culturally relevant suggestion. The gospel actually is the fuel that empowers this command. If you do not know Jesus Christ you will not consistently live out this command because you have no ability to overcome your flesh. The gospel's required here. The gospel is the residue that remains when you apply this command. The gospel is what motivates your heart to live out this command. The gospel is what breathes joy into the desires of those who successfully apply this command. So what's involved in this first commitment that's necessary to actually grow in expressing gospel-defined goodness? Well, let's unpack this phrase, and we can do that just a little at a time. Let's unpack what is being said here. What kind of commitment is involved in this first commitment? What does this look like? Well, first, this is a biblical commitment. I want you to see that. This is a biblical commitment. 
When you read that phrase, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, you should stop and ask, is, is this the first time we see this? And if you know your Bible fairly well, you're going to say, no, we, we've seen this one before. In fact, this is entrenched even back in the Old Testament. This comes from the Old Testament itself, and it's being reiterated again. This reflects the heart of God. This is a biblical kind of commitment. The Old Covenant law had provisions in it. You can go back and see them. They had provisions for how the Israelite society, as a society, even as a government, Israel, the Israel, Israelite society was a theocracy. It was its own nation. So how did they govern themselves? And you'll read back in the Old Covenant some passages like Exodus 21, 24 that say something like, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Remember that? Or Leviticus 24.20, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury has been given a person shall be given to him. And those are just two out of several. That was not a, a unique commitment just among the Israelites. Even the Romans in the first century had what they called the lex talionis, which is the law of retaliation. The ancient Babylonian code of Hammurabi was similar. But I want you to think about something because we're, we're all about eye for eye. Hit me, I'll hit you. Come at me, I'll come at you. The problem with that kind of mindset, even though those were laws, those laws were meant to tell the government how do they meet out penalty for crime. They were never how to display personal retribution. It's not about personal retribution. How do you have an ordered society? The government applies eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Personal retribution was never sanctioned in the Scripture. For example, Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. How about that? So yes, eye for eye for the government meeting out punishment for crimes. But for you, the injunction is love your neighbor as yourself. And what that means on the negative side is you'll never carry out personal revenge against someone. Proverbs 20, 22, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Or Proverbs 24, 29, Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. So yes, there's eye for eye. That's the government handling crime for you and me. Do not say, I'll do this to you if you do it to me. Revenge is off the table. Now, the Roman culture did have the eye for eye lingo, but they also had a revenge kind of mindset personally. They did. As one commentator notes, Thucydides, for example, sanctioned retaliation, stating this. Here's the common mood of the ancient culture. Where vengeance follows most closely upon the wrong, it best equals it and most amply requites it. What does that mean? Someone hits you, hit them back. 
Seneca commented that vengeance was legitimate. In the Roman world, just as in the Greek, avenging oneself for a wrong done was necessary because of the humiliation a Roman's prestige suffered. If he showed himself reluctant to respond and retaliate for hostile acts, a Roman governed by a harsh ethos simply could not afford to turn the other cheek and expect to maintain his position in society. The loss of social honor called for vengeance to be extracted in order to reestablish one's place in the community. I think we understand that well in our culture. I think there are many people who could make an argument and try to make an argument legitimately that if I want to move up, I've got to step on some folks. That if you're going to try to edge me out, I'm going to do all the more to get ahead of you and edge you out. Really. But the Christian ethic is different. And Christ actually modeled it for us as an example that we're called to imitate. If you are to live out this commitment, you must see this as a biblically faithful commitment. This has been God's standard from the beginning. So if you want to pursue personal revenge, you know you are violating the Bible. A second aspect of this commitment, it is a congregational commitment. It is a congregational commitment. The very first word in your your English text here is the word see. It is a present tense command in the original Greek language, meaning that it is something required. And it's required to be done as a habit over and over and over, occasion by occasion, instance by instance, repetitiously, inexhaustibly. But also this command is in the plural, meaning all of you should see to it. The church as a community should see to it. The testimony of the congregation must be that we do not pursue personal revenge. The church is not seeking revenge on the government. The church is not seeking revenge on those who persecute it. The church is not seeking revenge on anyone who seeks to harm the church as a congregation. In fact, An illustration of that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul actually instructs the Corinthians not to take each other to court in the secular courts and hang all their dirty laundry out in front of them, but to handle their sin among themselves, to police their sin among themselves and not allow sin to run rampant. Don't take it to the courts because what kind of testimony will that give the world about our ethic of how to relate to each other? This is a refusal to repay what is wrong and that is the heart of the whole congregation, a commitment that the entire church embraces. We are not a people given to vengeance done against us. Now, perhaps it might be legally legitimate to make an appeal to our courts in relationship to our government in how they have acted toward us. Perhaps we can make a legitimate case to pursue that. What we're looking at here, what's your attitude? Be careful before you pursue it. 
If we are defamed or harmed by people, government, culture, officials, we do not seek to defame or harm them when the opportunity becomes ours to do that. The testimony of our church must never be a litigious one or an embattled one. We must never be looked at as this is a people who are always seeking revenge on those who oppose them. That would never display the gospel well. It's a congregational commitment. It's a collective commitment. Third, it's an individual commitment. It's an individual commitment. So while the opening verb there, see, is plural, I want you to see something else in verse 15. See that the next two words, no one, these are singular. All of you need to see that no one individual, no individual is pursuing vengeance. Every individual Christian must battle the the penchant for revenge and retaliation. We know that. It's a war in our flesh. And no individual should pursue this. Not in your mind, not in your attitude, not in your actions. No one is to live this way. That's an individual commitment. Fourth, this is an intentional commitment. It is an intentional commitment. Again, I want to focus on the very first word in that English text, the word see. This is the only time in all of Paul's writings that he uses this word in this way. Typically, this word see means to physically, literally see something with your eyes. It's a normal word to see. But here, in this kind of a context, it means to pay attention. Pay attention. Look to do this. Look to watch out for this. Look for it and ensure that this does not or that it does happen. Look for it. Meaning, this must be something that you are intentional about. If you just wait to say, you know, now that I'm a Christian, I will never, I'll never have a problem with this. I never have to watch up. No, you have to watch your soul. You have to watch your church. You have to be very intentional that you do not repay what is wrong. It's an intentional commitment. Whenever you feel the fires of personal vengeance, you have to intentionally look to refuse them in your heart, in your mind, in your actions. When someone has perpetrated evil against you, you you have suffered a legitimate wrong, you refuse to act in a vengeful way. You refuse, you intentionally refuse to allow vengeful feelings. You say, how do I stop my feelings? You stop your feelings when you change your thinking. Because your thinking fuels the way you feel. And so you have to change how you see someone. You have to change how you view them so that you will begin to feel differently about them. And until you do that... You will, you will not be able to change vengeful feelings. Now, I, I just want to unpack this a little more. Can I? I'm going to, whether you want me to or not. Here I go. How do you, how do, you do this intentionally? Well, as I was reading through the scripture this week, th- this is not the only time you find this verse. In fact, why does Paul just throw this out there and doesn't say anything about it? Because there's so much across the Bible that says so much about this. It's like they know this. 
But I want to remind you, how do you intentionally refuse to repay what is wrong? Let me give you a few suggestions on that, all right? First, this, this gets practical, all right? Here's how you make an intentional commitment. First, persistently pray for those who persecute you. You want practical? Start praying. It is hard to hate people you pray for. Matthew 5, just jot it down and listen to it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. I just want you to hear them and then you think through how to work through them. Matthew 5, 43 through 45. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. How do you love them? And pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father. How do you know you're a Christian? When you intentionally pray for those who persecute you. Here's another practical way to apply this. Practically love those who hate you. You pray for them, but go a step forward. Practically love those who hate you. Again, picking up on the next verse in Matthew 5, Jesus isn't done talking about this. In Matthew 5, 46 and 47, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you, listen to this, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? How practical does this get? What would love towards persecutors look like? What would love towards enemy, our enemies look like? Well, let me just ask you, have you ever had an occasion where you know that there are some people who do not like you, they've done some wrong against you, they know they've done wrong, you know they've done wrong, and you feel it in them, and maybe there's some distance. Maybe they decided to go to a different church. Ever had that experience? And then you show up to a funeral or a wedding, and they're there. And something inside of you says, I'm going to sit over here, they're going to sit over there, and we'll just leave at different times. But the Bible would say, you want to know what practical love for those who hate you means? Walk across the room and put your hand out and greet them. If the Gentiles can do it and we can't, what does it say about us? Greet them. Don't wait for them. You know they did something legitimately wrong? Go up and embrace them. Praying in your heart as you're walking over there, I know. Begging God for help, but go do it. Meet their needs. That'd be a practical way to love them. So when your, your enemy goes to the hospital and come home, they come home, why don't you call their church? Or if they don't go to church, maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe you bring the meal over. Proverbs 25, 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. That's practical, isn't it? That's practical. Here's a, a third way to be intentional. Sincerely bless those who curse you. 
I had to put that word sincerely in there. Right? I mean, we all know what this feels like. Oh, yeah, I can, I can say, well, well bless, bless your heart. You know what that means in Texas? <laughs> You're so stupid. I mean, that's what we say when, we're, when we say that. Oh, bless your heart. No, sincerely bless those who curse you. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Think about that. How am I going to sincerely bless someone else who curses me? Remind yourself you deserve cursing and God is going to let you inherit an eternal blessing. So in that vein, you go and sincerely give them what they do not deserve, a blessing. Well, what does that mean? Forgive them. Maybe you say it out loud. Well, they haven't asked it. Tell them, I, I don't hold this against you. I know there's some tension. I feel the awkwardness. I don't hold it against you. Forgive them. They call for your demise, you call for their betterment. They yell at you, you respond graciously. That's how you bless. They try to undercut you in front of others and you, you, you feel this desire to humiliate them? No. Exalt them. Encourage them. They try to undercut you at work? Go speak well of them to the supervisor. Another practical way to live this out, genuinely give to those who take from you. Genuinely give to those who take from you. Matthew 5, 38, again, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You've heard that. Verse 39, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. In other words, Jesus says when your dignity is attacked, when your security is threatened, when your liberty is violated, you pursue an uncommon kind of generosity toward your violators. That's the gospel way. Another way that you could be intentional. Patiently wait for God to avenge you. Patiently wait for God to avenge you. Now I want you to write down in your notes, and if you don't take notes, you do right now. Because you need to write this down and you need to go to it. It's probably the most quoted verse I, I quote to myself and to others. Romans 12, 17 through 21. Romans 12, 17. Just listen to it. I, want, I don't want you to feel like you got to turn there and find it. Just listen. Because you know it. This one's hard. Romans 12, 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Here's the hard one. If possible... As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I know some people look at that and say, that's how I'm going to get even. <laughs> it's almost like we find a biblical way to express our vengeance. I'm going to do you good so you'll hate it. <laughs> no, that's not what he's saying here. Burning coals are God's judgment, not ours. You're waiting for God and his judgment, not yours. He reminds us, do not be overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. Wait for God to avenge you. He will. Listen, beloved, I'm not saying that we ignore sin in the church and we don't confront sin and we don't try to help one another live godly lives. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about revenge when you're trying to get back at someone for something they've done to you. This is how you, you live this one out intentionally. Let me give you one final way to be intentional. Joyfully trust God is transforming you. Joyfully trust that God is transforming you. Do you remember Matthew 5, 11 and 12? When Jesus talks about persecution, what is the Christian's response to persecution and opposition? Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad. What? Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Not here, not in this moment, in heaven. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, you rejoice Rejoice like the apostles when they were leaving their persecutors. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the Lord. Because you know, God's transforming me. He's using this. There's an eternal reward that is ahead. I, I don't have to live in a vengeful spirit right now. It doesn't accomplish anything good anyway. But heaven's great. Eternity is beautiful. The reward is there. It'll last for all eternity. You're going to forget that you were ever persecuted a day when you enter into eternity. This is how you become intentional about not repaying evil for evil. Again, I, I just want to reiterate, this does not mean that there's never an occasion when it's right to make a public appeal for justice when injustice is done. Perhaps we can make a legitimate appeal within the laws of our land, within the correct structures of our society that may allow for it, but you, you better look at your motivations, your intentions, your expectations. What's driving you to do this? There's no place for personal revenge. Even, even when you're trying to recover what's legitimate under the law, there's no place for a vengeful spirit. Yes, Paul appealed to the Roman law before being unjustly beaten. But friends, before you quote those verses, would you remind yourself how many nights he spent in jail unjustly? Would you remind yourself how many beatings he took unjustly? 
and did not say a word about it, but saw the gospel flourish because of it? Before going to law, before pursuing an eye for an eye, ask yourself, have you pursued all of what Jesus has told you to pursue toward your enemies? Are you looking to repay evil or are you looking to kill that attitude? Are you wanting to rub someone's face in the humiliation of their wrong? Or are you seeking and challenging your heart? No, how do I bless them? Do you want your foot on their neck? That's what's being spoken about here. Because no part of that kind of intention or attitude represents our Savior. If, if God's vengeance on those who unjustly treat us, if that is not enough for you, why? Why? Why is God's ultimate eternal vengeance on the unbelieving world not enough for us? What are we saying about ourselves? And what are we saying about God? Refuse to repay what is wrong. That's how you grow in goodness. That's a commitment you have to have in your heart to grow in goodness. Refuse to repay what is wrong. But that's not all. There's a second commitment. The second commitment is found in the latter part of this verse in verse 15. And I phrase it this way. Plan to pursue what is right. Plan to pursue what is right. In other words, this should be the normal habit of biblical life. You know, the, the Bible's like that. It usually tells you to stop doing something that's wrong, but it never start, stops there. It also comes back and says, now here's what you start doing that is right. You put off this sinful activity so that you will then at the same time put on this righteous one, right? That's what he's doing here. You, you never repay evil for evil, but... Here's what you do instead. If you want to be marked by goodness, you have to be committed to not repaying what you have encountered that is wrong. And at the same time, you must be intentionally planning how you will run after what is right. What an exacting command that is. So what's involved in this commitment? Let's unpack this one. What's involved here? Well, let's consider a few aspects of this commitment. What kind of commitment is this? First, this is a, what I call a contrasting commitment. A contrasting commitment. Now, I, I want to emphasize this because the text emphasizes this in, an, in a distinct way. Verse 15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. And then you see the next word, little conjunction that we take for granted, the word but. It's a couple of different terms in the Greek language to, that you could translate it as but. This is the most intense one. He makes this, he uses this particular term here so that you see in total contrast to how you have been treated, here's how you should live. It is in complete contrast. So let's think of all the evil that has been done to us and what would be the total contrast to what has been done to us. That's what we pursue. Complete contrast. Second, this is an urgent commitment. It is an urgent commitment. The idea of urgency is found in the term that is translated here as seek after. 
seek after. It is the word dioko in Greek, and it literally means to run after something. Sometimes this word dioko is translated as persecute. In a negative sense, it's the word for persecution. This is not saying, all right, they persecute you, you go get them. No. Are they running after you to defame you? You run after them to bless them. The intensity of which they are pursuing you, take the same kind of intensity to encourage them, to bless them. Run after this. Seek after this. If they're fueled by a red-hot anger and intense opposition against you, then you pursue just as intensely with love and benefit in your heart for them. You sprint to do what is good. That's the idea. Run after it. Aggressively pursue what is good. It's urgent. Meaning, they do something to you that the likelihood is to say, I'm just going to crawl inside my own shell here. Not say anything, not do anything, just back off, be anonymous. No. Aggressively go after good for those who persecute you, have done evil against you. Has some urgency to it. Third, this is an intentional commitment. It's intentional. The word seek after is a command calling us to do what does not feel natural to do. This is a command. Obey this. Seek after it. Pursue it. Run after it. It's not a suggestion. It is an intentional, planned out pursuit. You persecutors plan out their evil. Plan out your good. When your spouse yells at you and makes accusations about your motives... Or when your boss undermines your leadership and responsibility in front of other employees. Or when your children trash your provision for them and disregard all the good that they've received from you. When your parents yell, ignore, disregard, or treat you with disrespect. Or where your friends turn on you and leave you or spread untruths about you. You must intentionally then run after and tell yourself, I must go after what is good for them. Because there's nothing natural that's going to rise up in you and say, let me do the opposite. Likely, friends, what feels natural is probably going to be what's sinful. You running after what is right will have to be an intentional plan on your part. Here's another aspect of this commitment. This is a constant, a constant commitment. Now, what's interesting is that the word seek after is in the present tense in the Greek, and the present tense usually means to do something as a habit, repetitiously, do over and over and over and over. But Paul adds another word to make this redundant. Do you see it? See that no one repays another evil with evil, but what's the next word? Always. Always continually seek after. He's trying to be redundant here. He didn't have to put that always in there unless he wanted to emphasize something. If it's really bad, then I'll do it. But little slights, I'm not going to. No, always. Always. It's constant. Constant. Not when it's convenient. 
likely when it's most inconvenient. Not when you've had consistent quiet times and you feel more like doing it. When you haven't had consistent quiet times. When you don't feel very close to the Lord, you still do it. You don't have to have your quiet time to act in a godly way. You have to act in a godly way whether you've had your time in the Bible and prayer or not. Always, on every occasion, each time the evil is committed, you pursue, you run after, you plan for how you can express the good. There's not a scenario in which you repay evil for evil. You always run after with intentional planning how to express what is good. Here's another element of this kind of commitment here. It is a biblical commitment. It's a biblical commitment. Why do I say that? Well, when he says in verse 15, seek after that which is good, it literally reads in the Greek, it is the word good with the definite article. Seek after the good. The good, as if the good has some kind of definition to it. And we know that the good is not just whatever society thinks is good, not whatever you come up with as good, but what does the Bible say is good? What does the Bible say is good? Well, let me give you a few thoughts on that. How do we know what the good would look like? What's a biblical kind of good? Well, let me unpack that. First, pursue a good that reflects God's purposes. Pursue a good that reflects God's purposes. Where would I get that? Well, remember some verses that we love to cherish. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for, what's our word? Good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Evil's done. God works all things toward what's God's purposes. That's the good. Or how about Romans 12 too? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good. What is good? The will of God. Where do you get the will of God? The Bible. Be transformed so that you can prove what God's will is because it's good. What's God's purpose in the midst of this, you say, well, I don't know what the purpose of God is, but you do know he has a purpose. Right. He has a purpose to conform you into the image of Christ through all the things that we go through. So the good you pursue is what does God want? I know in every circumstance, I know at least the foundation, he wants to make me like Christ. Pursue that good. Pursue that good. You remember Joseph, Genesis 50, 20. When he says to his conniving brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it, what's the it? Your evil for good. God saved an entire people despite their evil and through their evil. God has a purpose. Pursue the good. Another way you could express goodness, pursue a good that God will reward. 
pursue a good that God will reward. What do I mean by that? Jot down 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. What will he reward? Maybe you stop when you try to contemplate the good and you imagine, what is it that God will look to you and say, well done, good and faithful servant? What would be the thing in your response that God would say, that receives an eternal reward? That is the good that God rewards. It's a good thought to have in your mind when you think about the good. Third, pursue a good that comes from God's word. Pursue a good that comes from God's word. Galatians 6, 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. This is an interesting thing. You receive teaching. What good comes from the teaching? You receive the word of God. The word of God shows you what to do. You apply it and you see the good that comes from it. Share that with those who've been teaching you. What is the good that comes from the word? How have you applied the word? That's what's showing you what the good is. Fourth, pursue a good that reflects gospel work. A good that reflects gospel work. For example, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what kind of works? What kind of works would show that we have been shaped by God through the gospel? It's worth you thinking through. What response would show that I'm shaped by the gospel? This shows that I am driven by the gospel. Here's another element of good. This one should be obvious, but let's just note it. Pursue a good that is contrary to sin. Pursue a good that is contrary to sin. Now, let me give you an example of that. When you think about a good that you pursue that is contrary to sin, jot down Ephesians 4, 28 and 29. Ephesians 4, 28 and 29. And then listen to this. Here's Paul's injunction. Here's how you live out the gospel. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. The good that he does is in contrast to the sin of stealing. What would be the good that contrasts the sin? Or, he goes on in verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is Good for edification. So I have unhealthy words coming out. What would be the gospel contrast to good words that are edifying? What's the good that would contrast the sin? I yelled, I screamed, I accused. What would be the good in the conversation and the communication? Pursue that and you'll be pursuing the good. That's the good. What does God define as good in his word that brings about his ultimate purposes? It's completely contrary to sin, demonstrates the blessings of the gospel, 
that he will reward as good in the day when your life is evaluated before the Father. That is the good. What is that kind of good in the face of the kind of evil you have suffered and the kind of injustice perpetrated against you? And sometimes that means that the good is not always what is what will feel the most pleasant or is what the other person wants. Maybe the good for the person wanting money is to show them how to use money. No, I just want the cash. Yeah, but I have something better for you. I want the good for you. So sometimes you have to think the good is not always what the other person's desiring, but it's what you know God would want for them. Now, I am sure that some are going to assume that I'm just suggesting that we be nothing more than pacifists who roll over to every sinful whim of the culture. All I'm asking is that all of us think about what does it look like to be like Jesus? First Peter 2.21, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Sometimes Paul defended his identity, but only when the gospel was at stake. If trashing his identity meant the gospel would be trashed, he defended his identity because it was connected to the gospel. That's the only time he defends himself. Make your appeal like Paul to the authorities. Fine. And when they deny it, embrace the suffering. Before you seek to justify yourself, Make sure you have been reflecting the will of God as revealed in the Bible and seeking the best spiritual good for the people who have been wrongly opposing or sinning against you. The good is a biblically defined good. Now, just two more quick aspects of this kind of commitment of what it means to pursue the good. Just two more. This is also a fellowship commitment. It's a fellowship commitment. Now, I want you to see this. It's a fellowship commitment in the last part of the the phrase. You pursue what is good for one another. For one another. It's a fellowship commitment. That is for those who are in the church. Those who are in the church, this is pursuing forgiveness 70 times 7 for those who keep sinning. It's seeking the spiritual betterment of the person who has sinned against you, which may involve loving confrontation of their sin, yes, but not out of revenge, not out of retaliation, but because if they continue down that road, it's going to be spiritually devastating for them. You don't want that for them. This is how we maintain fellowship. We pursue the good of each other. Seek the best possible spiritual good for those who are in the church. It's a fellowship kind of commitment. A last element of this, last of this commitment, this is an evangelism commitment. This is an evangelism commitment. You see it at the end of verse 15. You seek after that which is good for one another. That's those in the church and for all people, those who aren't in the church. We're seeking to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
I'm, I'm seeking to show the gospel. Did God have mercy on you only after you loved him perfectly? When did he love you? When you were his enemy. How do you love others? I mean, you're overwhelmed with the mercy and the forgiveness he's shown you despite the fact that you deserve his wrath. And he poured out on you the loving kindness. He took on human flesh, lived perfectly, died on the cross in your place, paid God's penalty, satisfied God's wrath, gave you the righteousness of Jesus. Do that for the lost. Show them who Christ is. Do this for all people. Remember Paul, when people were, he was in prison and people were actually preaching the gospel, thinking if we preach the gospel, he'll get more punishment, Philippians 1. His attitude was, well, Philippians 1.18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Let them preach. I don't care what happens to me. Maybe people become Christians despite them. Or Stephen, Acts 7, 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice as the stones are striking his skull. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And it was the last thing he said before he died. It's what Peter reminds us to do in 1 Peter 4.19. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Do what is right. If we hold back good and pursue revenge, we show more of what we think about God. We show more about what we think about our exalted selves than we do about the gospel or even the good of the person who has hurt us. When we pursue good and refuse revenge, we show, show that we find greater joy in the ultimate justice of God and in the life that we'll enjoy in radical satisfaction for all eternity. So grow in goodness because this is what your Savior did for you. This is what your Lord commands. This is how Jesus constantly treats us and he's our example. And remember this. He accomplished this verse. So yes, you can do it. Yes, you can. Because he did it. And he's in you. Let's pray together. Father, it is easy to define growth. And it is a war with our soul to live it out. So I pray that for all of us here that we would see the war 